I hate dandelions. Okay, I'm not alone. Who, who here hates dandelions? Yeah, oh, just a few of you? Okay, all right. Okay, so I guess the rest of you, your yards are just nothing but dandelions then. Um, yeah, dandelions, man, they're, they're just these terrible things, you know, and, and they're so deceiving. When you're little, you look at those dandelions and you think, oh, pretty flowers. And you take them and you give them to mommy, right? Uh, those are the flowers that, that kids just start off bringing to, to their parents and they think they're so beautiful and they want them to put them in the little jars of water. And, and yeah, they look all pretty at first when they're against that perfect green hillside um, contrasted with the blue, blue sky. It's such a nice picture. And then they take over, you know? They, they just completely take over your entire yard. And they are just about impossible to get rid of, aren't they? It doesn't matter what spray you use. It doesn't matter what the spray claims to do. Oh, we'll get rid of all the dandelions. We'll get it down to the root. You'll never have to worry about them again if you buy this spray. And so you buy this spray, and you spray and spray and spray. And, and it starts to kind of turn, and it wilts a little bit, and it browns. And you think, oh, good, I got it. And you mow, and then they're back again, right? That's how dandelions work. They're deceiving. They're pervasive. They're all-saturating, And that's exactly how the topic that we're going to be studying today works. As we continue our series, Doctrine for the Day-to-Day, the next aspect of theology and doctrine that we're going to be talking about today is homardiology. Homardiology. And that's a big word, long word, complex word sounding, but um, really it, it means the study of sin, the study of sin. And it comes from the Greek word hamartos, and that means literally to miss the mark, missing the mark. That's what uh, the Bible uh, calls sin. It's missing the mark. We're going to be talking about that more specifically in just a little bit, uh, but, but that's what hamartiology is, and that's the next topic uh, in our study that we've been in now the last few weeks. And sin, or missing the mark, it's a lot like those horrible dandelions. At first, sin makes you think it's going to please you. It's going to make you happy. It's, you know, it's something that uh, it will fill you up. It's, it's innocent. And, and as long as you don't go too far in it, you'll be okay. And, and then before you know it, it's taken over every part of your life every aspect of of your being, and it is incredibly pervasive and incredibly difficult to deal with. That's how sin works. That's how it functions. And to really deal with sin, much like what you have to do to deal with dandelions, you have to identify the roots. You have to identify the roots of sin. And you have to deal with it at the root level. It's not enough just to do something on the surface. And that's what we try to do so many times, isn't it? Don't you agree? We, we try to address our sin issue. We try to deal with our sin problem just on the surface level. We, we try to keep it shallow. 
we don't like going deep because it's painful. And once you start going into the deep parts of yourself, it gets really uncomfortable. And then you realize, oh, I've got to expose every part of me to this work of rooting out the sin that's in my life. And we don't like that. We don't like that. We want to just keep it at the top. We want to keep it surface level. And we want to pretend like everything's okay. And, and we're really good at that. We're really good at wearing masks. We are all very familiar with wearing masks now. We're all good at wearing masks, saying on the top, on the surface, everything's great. We put on those, those nice, shiny, happy appearances, and we say the right things. We go through the motions when so much of the time below the surface, like a big iceberg, there's, just, there's danger and there's disaster and there's decay. And so to deal with sin, to really deal with it, we have to deal with it at the root level. And that calls for identifying the roots of sin. The roots of sin. And so what I want to to tell you before we go any farther uh, today is what those roots really are. I want to identify that for you and with you. Uh, The roots of all sin. doesn't matter what sin it is specifically, you can trace it all back to these specific roots. Here's what they are. The roots of all sin are unbelief, idolatry, and pride. Unbelief, idolatry, and pride. That really is the roots of all sin. Uh, Unbelief that God is really enough, that He alone can satisfy us and fill us up. Unbelief that He is good all the time and for our good all the time. It's not believing that. It's sin. sin causes us to not believe that to be true. That He is enough for us that we don't need really anything else to fully or permanently satisfy us, it causes us to not believe that He alone can permanently satisfy us. It causes us to doubt that and to not believe that to be true. It causes us to believe that He's not really all the time good and that He's not always for our good. Uh, It causes us to doubt that and to bring that into question. Uh, it, It causes us to disbelieve that He is worthy of our complete devotion and of our total worship. That He alone is worthy of our supreme affection, which He is. But sin causes us to doubt that and to question that and to call that into question and even disbelieve it entirely. So unbelief. Um, it, it's idolatry. That's another root. And that is um, looking to any person or thing for the satisfaction, the fulfillment, the joy, the purpose that only God can bring and only He is worthy of us looking to. Idolatry is putting anything or anyone, not just before God, but on the same level as God. And we do that all the time, too. We do that many, many times, many different ways. We are prone to idolatry. We're bent toward it. And we're always going to be looking for things to fill our lives with that become 
objects or sources of worship and of our devotion, when that's reserved for God and God alone. He alone is worthy of that. But sin creeps in, and it takes root, and it causes us to build up, I mean, meaningless, senseless, small things, as well as great things that become God things. And, and that, that means that's true of even good things, good things by themselves. Things like church attendance. Things like full-time ministry. Things like Bible college and seminary and study. Things like music. Things like family time. Things like working hard at a job. All those things are good things, right? Those aren't bad things in themselves. But when we take those things, those good things, and we elevate them in a way that we shouldn't, and they become God things, then we're guilty of idolatry. And it's so subtle. Idolatry is so, so subtle. And it's a root of sin. And then, last but not least, uh, the third root that I mentioned is pride. And that, man, that is pervasive. Uh, that's really any time where, where we convince ourselves, or we say to ourselves, we lie to ourselves, we believe the lie that says, our wants matter most. What we want we should just go out and get it. Whatever we want, whatever we feel like, whatever we desire, it's okay to fulfill that no matter what. That we don't have to really say no to self. That there's nothing really more important than self. And it's easy for you to think, oh, well, I don't ever say that. But we can, we can say that internally at the heart and the mind level without even really being aware of it. And we do say that. Time and time again. We elevate ourselves above God's truth, above God's standard, above what God has for us or calls us to be or to do in our lives. We elevate our wants, our desires, our urges, our needs over other people. Instead of looking out for the interests of others, we look to our interests alone or supremely. Pride. Pride. It's another thing that's subtle, and it's deceptive, and it quickly takes root in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. So church, I really believe this. I've seen it in my own life. You can see it all through Scripture that all sin comes back to these roots and that all sin is rooted in this triple threat, as it were, this triple threat root system of sin. And we see it on display in the original sin that's recorded for us in God's Word. The original sin. Uh, and the original sin isn't actually the sin that took place with our, our great, great, million times great grandparents, Adam and Eve. That wasn't really the original sin. The original sin took place before them, and it happened with a creation, with one of God's creations, His created beings, but it wasn't humanity, not yet. The original sin took place with none other than someone by the name of Lucifer. That was his name, Lucifer. He was a created being. He was an angel. He was the, the chief angel, the highest of angels of the time that... Uh, whenever it was that God created the, the angelic beings. We don't know exactly when that was, but 
When he created angels, Lucifer was the highest ranking. He was the, the most elite of all the angels. And in that supremacy that he had, and in him being so elite, that got to his head and it got to his heart. And with the choice, the free choice that the angelic beings had at the time, he chose to give in to that deceptive pride that I just talked about. He chose to give in to the idolatry. And he chose to give in to the unbelief that all crept into his otherwise holy heart. He, he, even he wasn't completely impervious to the deceptiveness and the subtlety and the dangerous root of, of sin, that, that threefold root of sin. So in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, um, there's an incredible series of statements, and it's really directed at, at Satan, who, uh, who was Lucifer before he became Satan. Verse 12 of Isaiah 14 says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, or son of the morning, which is what Lucifer literally means. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And here's why that happened. Here's the source behind the disaster that happened in in Lucifer's story and in his life. You said in your heart, and this is always where sin begins, by the way. It always begins at the heart. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. You've got pride there, you've got unbelief, and you've got idolatry. Don't you see it all there? Pride, personal pride, arrogance that he's going to do those things. I, 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 I will, I will. Unbelief that God alone is worthy of that position, of that honor, that majesty, that glory. And also idolatry setting himself up to be worshipped and to be glorified. So it's all there. He continues, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And then, worst of all in these statements, the most dangerous of it all, I will make myself like the Most High. El Elyon. Wow. I will make myself like the Most High. And no one, no one but the Most High is like the Most High. So there's the original sin. And it certainly wasn't limited to Lucifer, Satan. He didn't waste much time spreading his original sin and the roots of that sin to another aspect of God's creation, a a very choice aspect of God's creation. It didn't take long at all. And what we see very, very early on in Scripture, and it's certainly the first example of sin in in our experience, the first human's first sin. The first human's first sin. And that's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to start by looking at verses 1 through 7. Genesis 3, 1 
through 7. The first human's first sin. And Scripture there says this, verse 1, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And there's a lot of reason to think that that in itself isn't necessarily bad or, or evil, that this was describing um, an actual part of the creation, an actual part of the animal creation that God had made, and, and that this particular animal, which is unlike what we would have today or know today, um, that it was very uniquely clever and smart, and that that was what it was already. But that Satan took advantage of that in either be, you know, putting on the form of that or, or possessing that. I mean, we don't know the details of that, but what we do know is that Satan, in some way, some form, became this serpent, which was already part of God's design, part of the animals that was already the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. So we just need to understand a little bit of that background. And he, the, the serpent that was either taken over by Satan or, or that Satan you know, had made himself like, whatever the case is, here's what happened with that. He, Satan, said to the woman, Did God really say? Did he really say? Did you hear him right? Did you understand him right? You're sure you got that right? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Verse 4, the serpent slash Satan says this, No! No, 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 you poor thing. No, simple-minded one. You will certainly not die. That's not true. God's not true in what He said there. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Verse 5, In fact, here, let me clear this up for you. Let me provide you clarity. Let me do you a favor. In fact, here's what's behind that statement, Eve. Here's what's behind that statement from God, that command, that standard, that unfair, unjust standard that He's holding you to. Here's what's really going on. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Which Isaiah 14 told us, was Satan's aspirations all along, right? Or at least eventually, what he came to. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. As if God were just so insecure and so afraid that Adam and Eve would become like him, rise to his level, and maybe even usurp him. He was just so insecure and so afraid of that happening that that's why he did this. That's why he was limiting them. He was just holding them back. God's just holding you back, Eve. He's not for your good. He's not always good, perfectly good. He's not just wanting to keep you 
safe and keep you good and keep you intact and keep you in fellowship with Him and keep you walking with Him and keep you experiencing holiness. That's not what this is about, Eve. He's wanting to keep you from experiencing your, your, your full potential. He's wanting to keep you from full fulfillment. That's what's really going on here. And it's the same lie, Christian, that Satan keeps whispering in your ear and in your mind and in your heart. That's what he keeps saying. Did God really say that all, all that God has, has told us and revealed to us in His Word, did God really, really say that? And, and what you think He said, is that really what He means? Let's maybe reinterpret this. Oh wait, that standard, that level of righteousness and holiness that you're reading about and that you've heard messages about and you've heard teaching about, that was for a certain group of people at a certain group of time. That's not relevant for you now. No, no, no. Truth, that's all relative. There's no such thing as objective truth and one standard of righteousness and holiness. No, that's not what it was meant. And, and anyway, here's what's really going on behind all that. God's just trying to hold you back. He doesn't really have your best interest at heart. Verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Let me just stress something. The woman saw, saw, looked, gazed upon, really is what's going on here. Lust of the eyes, anyone? The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. There's lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Pride of life. I, I need that. I want that. I deserve that. I'm worthy of that. I need to be the most wise of, of all of creation. In fact, yeah, it sounds pretty good that I could be like God. I could reach His level of wisdom. That's really what Satan meant when he said knowing good from evil. He meant you'll reach the, the heights of wisdom, supreme wisdom. Don't you want that? And Eve starts thinking about it, and she's looking at this fruit, and she's thinking, yeah, you know, I do want that. I, in fact, I, I deserve that. I deserve this. So she saw that it was good for food, delightful to look at, desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He wasn't gone and he came back and he found out what happened. He was there with her the whole time, most likely, hearing the whole thing. And instead of telling the servant to get away and using his authority given to him by God to rule the animals and all of the creation under him, instead, he just went right along with it and made himself a servant, submitted to this creature, this deceiver, instead of protecting Eve and leading her in their, their own little family unit that they had there, leading her the way he was supposed to, instead he just gave completely, gave completely in to, to this temptation himself and, and completely let go of his role as leading his wife. He ate it too. In verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. That doesn't mean they realized they didn't actually have literal clothing on. That was true already and they were so smart 
before this fall, they would have known that. I mean, so that's not, it's not talking about literal nakedness in that sense, because that was already a fact. No, this is that they realized in this moment of, of disobeying God's clear command, of rebelling against God's standard for them, here's what happened. The light and glory of God that they too had, being perfect, being created literally by God, and, and walking in and fellowshipping with Him in, in person, face to face, they would have absolutely been surrounded by and would have had as a covering the very light and glory of God. They would have been immersed in the Shekinah. That would have been true of them. Think of what happened with Moses, who was a fallen, sinful man, who just in his fellowshipping with God from a distance, and and just the the holiness and splendor of God kind of spilling over on him, the Bible says his face shone so brightly that he had to wrap his face when he came back down with the people. I mean, that was a fallen person. This was Adam and Eve before they fell in total perfection. No barrier at all between them and God. So the glory of God would have just totally surrounded them. But when they rebelled, when they disobeyed, when they sinned, that light went out. And they would have immediately known the glory and the light that we had and, and enjoyed and knew, it's, it's gone. We are naked of the glory of God. That's what sin always does. It always separates the sinner from the glory of God. So they knew they were naked, absent of the light and the glory and the perfection that they previously had. So here's what they did. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They made, they, they attempted to substitute the covering of the glory and the light and the perfection of God that they enjoyed themselves. They attempted to, to substitute and cover that for themselves by sewing fig leaves together. What a pathetic attempt, right? But any attempt, any attempt to deal with sin on our own will be ineffective and insufficient. Always going to be true. Any attempt to deal with sin on our own will be ineffective and insufficient, just like Adam and Eve sewing fig leaves together to try to cover themselves. So, first humans, first sin, right there. Tragic. I mean, that, that is one of the most, if not the most, tragic, heartbreaking turn of events in any story you'll ever read. And that's our story. And what this shows us, just this, this dialogue, this scene, what it shows us, what it tells us and reminds us of is that Satan, the great deceiver, always tries to convince us that God's truth is a lie and that His lies are actually the truth. That's what Satan will always try to do. Jesus said that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. That's exactly what he is. Well, let's keep going in this, uh, this story, this tragic, tragic story. 
Genesis 3, verses 8 through 10. Word of God says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, which was most likely the routine, the habit. That's how it normally was. This was definitely not the first time this happened. It was probably what was kind of a scheduled appointment, that every evening God would come down and walk with Adam and Eve, His creation. What a thought, right? What a thought. And, and we're, we're, we're probably tempted to think, oh my goodness, how could Adam and Eve have been so stupid? How could they have sinned so easily when they enjoyed fellowship with God and a relationship with God in that way? When they had God side by side, person to person, face to face, for however long they enjoyed that before they fell, Adam and Eve, how could you have done that? How could you have taken that relationship and torched it the way you did by your rebellion? How could you have done that so easily? We could be tempted to do that, but think about this, Christian. You and I, if we're truly in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We talked about that last week. We have the very God living and abiding in us, which is even more than what Adam and Eve had. And yet we still choose sin as easily as we do. We can't be too hard on Adam and Eve. Yeah, they walked with God day to day, but we have God literally in us, and yet we still expose our mind and our heart to sin a thousand different times, a thousand different ways. Can't be too hard on them. So they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he, Adam, said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Again, naked in the sense of being absent, cut off now from that divine glory, that divine light that had so enveloped them before. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. First time that had ever happened for Adam. First time that was his reaction to God. Because I was naked, so I hid. Church, Christian, everybody listen. Sin always results in alienation. Sin always results in alienation. First, it will alienate us from God. But right along with that, inevitably, it will also alienate us from one another. Sin always cuts us off from relationship. From relationship with God and relationship with other people. It always harms it. It always separates us. It always forces us into hiding and into isolation of some form. That's always what sin does. Every single time. And here's the other thing that that I want you to know about sin as as we're talking about this today and studying this. Sin isn't just something we do. Sin saturates every part of our world. Sin isn't just something we do that we commit. It's, it's something that we live in. I mean, we are, we are saturated by it. We're surrounded by it, inundated by it. It's, it's like The Matrix, the movie The Matrix. 
Probably a lot of you have seen it, know what I'm talking about. Uh, right at the, I think it was maybe 99, 2000, um, The Matrix came out, and it was just this revolutionary movie, this sci-fi movie. And the, the basic premise of the movie is that everybody lives in a fake computer simulated world, and they don't know it. And all, the, all their, their existence is uh, used for is to feed and serve the machine world that has fabricated this elaborate um, mirage world that's not real. They're all plugged into this system that just feeds and serves the machines. And everything they see and think and feel and touch is really just a simulation. And so the people that have gotten out of the matrix then spend their time trying to free the rest of humanity, trying to show them what the real world is like, to free them from that, and to bring them into reality. That's how That's how it is to be human. To be human is to be part of, plugged into a sin system. That's what the world is around us. Every part of it. There's no part of our world that is untouched by sin and its effects. So sin isn't just something we do, it's something we live in. And it's always going to be that way. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, all the creation is groaning for its redemption until the time when God makes everything new, when he, he makes a whole new world, when He restores perfection. So until that happens, it's always going to be this way, where the world around us, every part of it, is affected by sin, by Adam and Eve's sin, and the curse on that sin. It, it just affects everything. How do I know that's true? Well, Genesis 3, 16-19 shows us that's true. As a result of Adam and Eve's sinful choice, as a result of their rebellion, here's what happened next. See, it's not just something they do. It's something that affects every aspect of their life in the world that they were living. And that kept being true of every person after them all the way up through to us today in our experience. Verse 16, Genesis 3, To the woman he, God, said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Every woman can say amen to that. Every woman that's had a child can say, yep, that's absolutely true. So it it affected even life. It affected the, the producing of life. And then he goes on, Your desire, Eve, shall be contrary or in opposition to, in contradiction to, and in conflict with your husband. You're always going to be in contention. You're going to desire to call the shots. You're going to desire to tell him how wrong he is. You're going to desire to show that you're right and he's wrong, and, and this is a really, really dumb decision, and, and hey, why don't you think of it like this? And, and when your husband does say, I think we should go this way, I think we should do this, I think this is the plan we should have, this is how our family should operate, when, when the husband is, to, is trying to fulfill his God-given role as leader of your home, leader of the family, your natural tendency, women, is going to be to, to buck at that, to resist that. And to try to do your own thing and to try to kind of usurp his role. And that's all coming back to Eve's choice and Eve's sin. So it affects even our relationships. It saturates even our our relationships together. 
And then verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. See, the sinful action, the sinful choice spread out and it affected every aspect of life. So sin is not just something we do, it's the world we know. Verse 20 says, The man called his wife's name Eve, which seems to indicate that she wasn't named up to this point, because she was the mother of all the living. She was the mother of all the living. And because she was the mother of all the living, and because she chose to sin the way she did and became a sinful person, and because she was a sinner and the mother of all living, that means she passed down her sinfulness to every single human. It became part of our very DNA. And that shows us, and that tells us, and that communicates to us and gives us the reality that isn't comfortable, that people don't like to hear, that people debate and doubt and argue against, and many refuse to accept, but it's true nonetheless, and that's this. We aren't born basically moral and good. We're not born basically moral and good. No, we're born morally broken and sinful. That's true of every human being that has ever lived and ever will live. All because of the brokenness and sinfulness that was introduced by Adam and Eve and then just shared and passed down over and over and over again. But don't just take my word for it. Romans 5.12, God's perfect and inspired word, says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people. Because, or so that, all sinned. Because all sinned. It's just like those dandelions. You have one, quickly you'll have a thousand. Because it just spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads. Psalm 51.5 says this, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. I mean, think about that. At the moment of conception, which we, we all can see from Scripture over and over again, that life begins at conception. But when that life begins at conception, that life is immediately a sinner and therefore guilty before God. That's just the reality of what it means to be human. But here's the other thing we need to know. We need to make sure we understand. This is so important as we look at this very essential doctrine, the doctrine of sin, homardiology. We're all sinners by choice, not just by birth. 
If we were just sinners by birth, we might have a little bit, not much, but we might have a little bit of ground to stand on and to say, well, that's not fair that we are judged for sin and guilty of sin that we just inherited through, through no act or choice of our own. But that's not the case. That's, that's why we, we really have no ability to say that we are innocent and that we don't deserve the guilt that we have. We're all sinners by choice, not just by birth. Again, don't just take my word for it. Here's what God's Word says. Psalm 53.3 All have turned away. That's a conscious choice and decision. All have turned away. All alike. No one left out of this. All alike. Universal here. Universal truth. All alike have become corrupt. Polluted. Tainted. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's pretty clear, don't you think? But God's Word provides even more clarity. Romans 3, 23 says this, For all have sinned, missed the mark. Remember I said that homardiology, the study of sin, comes from the Greek word homartos, That's missing the mark, missing the target, like an archer trying to get that bullseye, and he keeps missing it no matter what he does. He keeps missing it, missing the mark. All have sinned. All have missed the mark and fall short or missed the mark of the glory of God. The standard, my fellow human, the standard is perfection. The the standard is, is reaching up to the glory of God, which because of our sinfulness, we're never, ever going to be able to reach on our own. No matter how much we try, no matter how many things we we come up with to try to reach it, we're never going to. We will always fall short of His perfect standard of righteousness and His perfect standard of holiness. And that's going to be true for all of us. And if our story ended there, what a horrible, nightmarish tragic end it would truly be. But it doesn't have to end there. That doesn't have to be the concluding statement. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. That happened. That happened. The Creator who made Adam and Eve, who experienced their rebellion against Him, came to sinful man who He created, and He went to the cross for them to rescue them, us, you and me, from our sinful state. From our sinful condition. Redemption is what Christ brought. Redemption. Redemption from our horrible rebellion. And redemption through Christ on the cross, His work on the cross, redemption through Christ is the only remedy for man's condition. All of our condition is what we just read. That we've all turned away. We've all become corrupt. That no one does good on their own. No one seeks after God on their own. We've all sinned. We've all fall short of the glory of God. And that is our hopeless state. That's our condition. Every one of us. We're sick. 
terminally with sin without any hope to cure it on our own or by ourselves. But God, who loved us so much, even though we were sinners and rebels, He sent His Son to provide the only remedy and cure there is. Justification and redemption by His sacrifice on the cross. Redemption through Christ is the only remedy for man's condition. Here's what Romans 3.24 says. Romans 3.23, we just read, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But it continues. It doesn't stop there. Verse 24, and they are justified, declared righteous, made right, made righteous before God. They are justified freely by His grace, something we could not ever deserve or ever earn for ourselves. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 18-19 says this, Therefore, as one trespass by Adam and Eve led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That one act of righteousness that Jesus Himself did on the cross. Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, the God-man, Jesus Christ, by the one man's obedience to His Father going to the cross, the many will be made righteous. That's the good news. Our rebellion doesn't have to be the end of the story. Our rebellion can be overcome by redemption through Jesus Christ. And it's made available. It's available. It's open to you. But here's here's the other thing we have to know and understand about that redemption, about that remedy that has been given to us. Redemption requires repentance. Redemption requires repentance. Redemption has been made available to you, to me, through Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. But that remedy that He alone provides through His redemption, it's only able to be received by our repentance from the sin that we've inherited and that we choose ourselves daily. Psalm 51, 17 says this, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled or contrite heart, O God. That, that shows repentance. That describes and defines repentance. What it means to really repent. And then 1 John 1, 8-9 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, that means acknowledge our sin and agree with God on on it, on what it is. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That happens at the moment of salvation and then continually, perpetually, as we go forward in our salvation and in our sanctification. But it only happens through repentance. That's an absolute essential part of everything we're talking about. 
And it's a part, unfortunately, many people leave out and don't pay enough attention to. So all that leads us to what we're going to be talking about next week as we start to come to the end of of this study and this series, Doctrine for the Day-to-Day. We're going to be talking about our salvation next week and all that that means and all that's part of that and all that that is implied for that and all that that, uh, results from our salvation. But we we can't really appreciate our salvation until we fully understand the depths and just horrible nature and disaster of of our sin. And if you're here today and you've never done anything about your own sinfulness, then don't wait till next week to hear about the salvation that's been provided for you. You heard enough right now. You heard enough right now to understand what you need to understand, to receive it to accept it, to embrace it. Let today, right now, be the day and time of your salvation and repent of the sin that is yours by birth and by choice. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word once again. Thank You for how clear it is, for how relevant it is. Father, talking about sin is never a bright and happy and shiny kind of thing. It, it's, I mean, it's, it's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's a little bit of a downer. It's, it's negative. It's dark because that's what our sin is. But Father, it is so necessary for us to understand the concept and the reality of sin so that we can understand our need for the Savior and so we can understand how glorious our salvation really is. So I pray that you would take what we've talked about. I pray that you would take the Word that we've looked in, Your Word, and that by Your Spirit's work and His power, that He would illuminate what we've read and and what I've sought to express, that He would apply the truth of what we've talked about here today to every single person that's here. Thank You for those of us who are in Christ for applying by Your Spirit the deliverance, the remedy, for our sin, the the power over sin that we didn't have ourselves. For those who are here that have not yet received your gift of grace and salvation, the remedy for their sin, I pray that today, right now, would be the time where they turn away from their sin and turn toward you. That's what repentance is. And that they would receive the work of Christ on their behalf. Thank you for, for providing the remedy for our sin that you alone could provide. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.